Hi there. This is Fuzz on Film, and this is going to be our first intermission episode for 2018. Welcome. Hi. Hope you're feeling great. Uh, we've got a bunch of films to talk about, so let's just do that. I'm Drew, over there. Craig. Uh, hello. And Scott. Delighted to meet you. Uh, let's just get straight into it then. Mr. Morris, take us away. Yes, we are going to kick off with Bright uh, from Netflix, who are no stranger to film production, of course, but it's largely focused on the low to mid budget dramas and comedies, and even then, I think most of it has been purchasing things that have already been created. Given that the distribution model is so different from the usual cinema slash studio relationship, it's hard to know if that's been a huge success for them economically, but they've had more than a few critical successes, like Beasts of No Nation and Okja. But that said, they're also funding Adam Sandler movies, so there's no clear indication <laughs> on which side of the fence their first big, big budget, effects heavy blockbuster attempt bright would fall. And lo, it appears, and the critics loathed it. But Netflix can move a lot of eyeballs in a particular direction if it wants to, and just you try and avoid an ad for this film and log in at Netflix since its release. I presume, given that they've announced plans for a sequel, it hit its engagement metrics, or whatever it is that makes a Netflix-only film a success. Uh, but the more interesting metric for us is that the audience reviews were, on the whole, quite positive. Curious. I suspect the truth may be between those polls, but that's getting ahead of myself. Uh, the, the essential conceit of Bright is that basically The Lord of the Rings was a historical documentary rather than a work of fiction. A dark lord rose to power, but was overthrown by an allied force of humans, elves and rebel orcs. However, unlike Tolkien's works, the other races did not decide to leave the picture. Elves stick around as the 1%, a pointy-eared elite, while the orcs form a permanent underclass, still loathe for their backing of the baddies millennia ago. Humans are, in theory at least, a sandwich in between, although it seems there is just as much inequality between the humans and the elite in this world as there is in ours. Will Smith's Daryl Ward is an LAPD officer who's dismayed to be lumbered with a new partner, Joel Egerton's Nick Jacobi, the first orc copper. He's forced to overcome his prejudices when, after some world-building preamble, they respond to a call to what turns out to be some sort of safe house that turned out to be not all that safe, given the number of people turned inside out in it, and evidence points to the use of magic, which was presumed to have faded from the world, and indeed a magic wand turns up, a very rare and very powerful item, along with a dazed elvish survivor, Lucy Fry's Tika. It is unclear what overall percentage of elves are named after Indian food. It wasn't just me that was unable to not make that connection or joke. Yes, this, that was a strange one. I don't know what this was there. Unfortunately, no matter what multiverse you're in, the one constant is that LAPD are staggeringly corrupt, and so the backup that Ward has called in decided rather kill Ward and Jacoby and take the one for themselves. This earns them all lead salads, but it does mean that Ward and Jacoby have to go on the lam through a hostile Los Angeles with the wand Antica chased by the cops, local gangs, both orc and human, and most pressingly, Nomi Rapace's Layla and her elite elf goons looking to reclaim their wand in order to resurrect the Dark Lord. So, it's basically a buddy cop come chase film with a Dungeons and Dragons skin over it then. And indeed, divested of all the fantasy trappings, it's a slender narrative indeed, but it's one that's just about up to the task of upholding the action sequences and the partner banter that you'd expect from something plucked from the late 80s to early 90s, just with one of said partners under a ton of makeup. Director David Ayers keeps things moving along well enough after an arguably touch-too-slow opening act, but, well, there's a decent amount of world-building exposition that necessarily needs to be front-loaded, so I'll forgive it that. Uh, thankfully, overall, it hues right up the middle between the Ayers penned training day, with which you could argue it shares some DNA, mm -hmm. and the Ayers helmed suicide squad, the least said of which the better. Still, it must be said, there's more than a few problems with Bright, more or less entirely from Max Landis's script. Oh dear, Max Landis. Um, you know, there's some people you hear bad things about and think, nah, he just doesn't seem the type. 
definitely doesn't apply to Max Landis. <laughs> he very much seems the type and seems to have gone to ground since the sexual abuse allegations were levelled against him. And though it seems clear that Landis is a right old tolly and no mistake, some will want to boycott all things associated with him, which is an understandable position. And looking through his IMDb page, you're not missing out on much. But in the interests of separating this artist from the rest of them, what's done worked on this, let's limit the criticism to the script because there's enough to go around there. In terms of overall enjoyability, the main problem I've got with it is that it's got an awful lot to squeeze in to make the scenario understandable and it doesn't have the right balance of pacing to it at all. It's too much at the start, although I understand why that's done. There's nowhere near enough at the end and all the chasing and shooting and fighting uh, of the last hour so just blends into each other. It gives the film a very unbalanced feel and it's not a film crippling offence and there's just about enough quips peppered throughout the Will Smith's character charisma over a lot of the gaps. There have been other more outre criticisms levelled at a script that I don't think are worth getting into, but I will say this. If you watch this film and come away thinking that Landis has equated working class black and Latinx people with subhuman orcs, you're assuming a great deal of bad faith on Landis's part that I don't think the rest of his career and character supports even under his current clouds. He is an arsehole, but an arsehole in a very different way. That said, let me just check my privilege. Yup, it's still set to old white guy, so please take my opinion on that for what little it's worth. <laughs> so, this is a brave new world of film distribution, and we film reviewers must change along with it. I'd be summing this up awfully differently if it were only in cinemas, but Netflix is such a different kettle of fish that the value propositions have changed entirely. It's, of course, certainly not worth subscribing just to see this film, or indeed any single film, but that's what Netflix is selling you on. Assuming you're already subscribed, is it worth watching the first half hour and seeing what intrigues you enough to continue? Of course it is, at that point it only cost us your time, but couldn't you say that about any film on Netflix? Of course you could, that's how they get you. <laughs> Instead, let's say this, there is a lot of world building in here that takes a few more risks and has a broader scope than most Hollywood films and that's to be applauded. See also Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, an otherwise good film with a severe misfortune to be infected with charisma vacuum Dane Dehan. However, a lot of the more meat and potatoes aspects of the film, the dialogue, the action, the performances and so on, hover around the fine descriptor, bringing this down to somewhere just above average mark. And there's any number of outright better films out just now that you could watch instead, so it's difficult to recommend dropping everything to watch. I don't think it's a bad film, and those people in December calling it the worst film of the year were, I suspect, looking only to the boost page views at a time of the year when they naturally start tailing off due to the holidays. That's a very clickbaity take. Yeah. It really and, is. But, as always, I just miss the days when Will Smith would provide the theme music for his films. <laughs> <laughs> right, the theme tune, sing the theme tune. <laughs> I can't think of a, of a movie pitch that interests me less. Drew. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, Scott, on the whole, I liked it a little less than you, but still found it reasonably interesting. And you mentioned risk, and that's certainly something it is. $90 million is the reputed budget for this. Mm. And to put $90 million into a streaming only property with this sort of world and this sort of topic. And, and Will Smith at this point. Uh, <laughs> yes, perhaps to. Uh, long gone are the days of Will Smith being the huge film opening star that he once was. So yeah, there's a risk there and I'm rather glad they took it because it is not so like much else I've seen, I think. At least in terms of the world. In terms of the actual plot, yes, I've seen this film several times. Yeah. (laughs) I've seen it in The Fifth Element because the uh, Lucy Fry's character. 
Isn't it just Alien Nation again? Yes, it is. That's very yeah. much what it is. It's what's up. Mm. Alien Nation plus Training Day. Mm. And it, it still doesn't come close to really good David Ayer stuff like End of Watch, unfortunately. Mm. But the problems I have with this, the dialogue aside, which is terrible, and also why is Nomira Pass even in this film? She has, what, three lines to speak? Yeah, and it really could have been anyone. I was hoping you exactly, might, it was yes. maybe one of those, you know, sometimes some actors put like a really great like non-verbal performance that you can kind of see why their physicality was there for it. But Carla Van's chin. Yes. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't really have anything to do in this film. It's not necessarily her fault. I think she's doing everything that was asked of her, but she's not really asked to do much more yes, than walk occasionally. <laughs> why she's there. Yes, exactly. And as I mentioned, Lucy Fry, who plays Vindulu or Corm or whatever her name is. <laughs> Onion Badgie, I think her name was. <laughs> when she's speaking in this sort of gibberish, elvish, language um, again like uh, Mila Jovovich in The Fifth Element she doesn't seem so bad though she doesn't have a lot to do and then she starts speaking in English and no please please love go back to the English it's an Elvish it's, you're not good at this uh, a lot of the problems I have with it are much more structural you mentioned the world building Scott there are some really interesting ideas in there uh, like these is it, yeah, if the Lord of the Rings were a documentary and these people living together now that's kind of interesting. And there are little snippets you see, particularly in the background, there's a dragon in the sky at one point, and there's the centaur police officers and stuff. And I thought, yeah. oh, that's quite interesting. But then it's it's a really, really half-baked world because it's basically this world with a couple of different buildings and some different graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> so they've not thought that through. It's like, you've got centaur police officers. Why are all the buildings exactly like they are now? Why does everything look like it looks now with a couple of different buildings and some different faces you know so the world building isn't actually all that strong there's an intriguing idea in there Hmm. i don't think it's particularly well carried out and then it's also so incredibly one note it feels like it could be a star trek um film because every group has all like every single elf is some snooty rich thing every single police officer is corrupt without exception they're corrupt and they beat people, every single one. There's no nuance in this film, which is my biggest problem. There's no nuance, subtlety or shades of grey or anything. Every single orc seems to be a gang member. Every single Latino human is a gang member, certainly. And it's all just a bit underwhelming. Definitely seeds of a good idea in there. I, I did quite enjoy it and I just kind of just wish the world had been more thought through and had some idea of nuance I certainly wasn't bored by it, and in its two-hour running time, it actually, it didn't really ever bore me. It seemed to keep going along quite well. Well, it gets a bit thin on content by the end, when it just becomes an action film. And yeah. That, I kind of tend to switch off with those nowadays. Oh, they're shooting at each other again. Okay. And then they have that, and it's only once, fortunately it's only once, but they have the same sort of, sort of cliched, cool, stylized thing of someone pointing the gun at a direction they're not looking at and shooting someone dead and like you think it looks cool it never looks cool it just looks ridiculous every time it's ever used uh, but again that's used once that's a that's a very very minor niggle it's just <laughs> in a film where humans are knocking about with elves and orcs <laughs> that is a minor niggle <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you that sort, of, that sort of thing just seems daft nowadays I haven't seen the film but I can picture what you're talking about and it does seem silly <laughs> yeah I, I wouldn't suggest that anybody watched it but I wouldn't particularly put anybody off the idea if they they had their hearts in either it's, 
I don't know. Um, it's the sort of thing I was getting to. If the idea sounds intriguing enough, it's worth spending the first you know twenty minutes of it just watching it and seeing if it's anything that's actually landing with you. Because yeah. by that point, you're already subscribed to Netflix, so you're not really out all that much apart from twenty minutes of your time. Yeah. Do do the do the police ride segways? They do not. It's not Paul Blart. <laughs> Two stars. Um, <laughs> that's largely how I rated it anyway. But uh, <laughs> the fact that there's a sequel being greenlit. Suggest that maybe they can explore this world a bit and just at least try to explain a better writer than Max Landis. Yes, um, <laughs> somebody who can write dialogue and any degree of nuance at all. Get a <laughs> couple of segues in there. <laughs> and yeah, you mentioned to Scott Will Smith's innate charisma, which I've always thought he's had. I like Will Smith, um, but yeah. he has been in some absolute turds. Fortunately, this doesn't quite. There's recall, no denying it. <laughs> this doesn't quite recall Bad Boys. You know, David Ayer seems to have got a better performance out of him in this than. Um, <laughs> your man Michael Bay could get out of him in Bad Boys but mm. it's there are elements of that film on, in here sort of feelings anyway so it's not peak Smith by any chance it's, yeah it's, but, you know Smith at about 65% is about good enough still to yeah. about pass passing grade but yeah Again, not, I think the problem best. really is it's less Will Smith's performance is that he's not given a lot to perform yeah he's just not given anything interesting to do and maybe if they can expand this universe a bit find somebody who can actually write dialogue mm then it may actually be an interesting premise because of the, aside from my issue with the fact that the world doesn't look so different from ours, there is some interesting stuff in there and um, all the races and the things happening. That, that there's a setting there that could be something interesting. Uh, just, yeah, find a better writer. Decent enough idea, but stick it back in the oven for another couple of years and see what pops out. Mm. Shall we batter on then to a... A, a, a certainly more critically acclaimed film with uh, three billboards outside somewhere in Missouri. Yes, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That's the one. In which Frances McDormand's character Mildred deeply regrets her final conversation with her daughter. <laughs> um, <laughs> only the third film from writer-director Martin McDonough following In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. Three billboards sees Mildred, a middle-aged mother, take the local authorities rather publicly to task over their failure to advance the case of her teenage daughter's horrific rape and murder some year previously. Uh, Having the sudden brainwave to rent the titular three billboards on a now obsolete road through the fictional town of Ebbing, Mildred sets about plastering them with a set of messages that directly target the popular town sheriff Willoughby, Woody Harrelson, for his perceived failure to uncover any leads in her daughter's case. It's a decision which proves incredibly divisive for the backwater town, and it leads to all manner of revelations, small and large, about a number of the characters who inhabit it. Chiefly, of course, is Mildred, whose behaviour throughout the film is as unpredictable as it is human. For every moment of sympathy Frances McDormand masterfully claws out of her character, there are typically two steps back, sometimes even two kicks to the genitals of schoolchildren <laughs> who harass her son for his mother's erratic behaviour. <laughs> but that's a very funny scene, so I, I'm on board with her doing that. Yes, I was largely on board, but I... Yes. <laughs> I thought less of myself afterwards. Uh, most crushingly is the flashback to Mildred's last conversation with her daughter that ends in her saying, under the circumstances, quite literally the worst thing any parent ever could to their child. Uh, no small credit then to all involved that we do not immediately dismiss Mildred as worthy of the hole she's in. In a wonderful display of the ebb and flow of the nature of humanity, McDonough steadfastly refuses to allow any of his characters to be painted in black or white. Uh, and it's a decision that earns the film some credit, especially in the hands of this capable cast. Harrelson is great as Mildred's counterintuitively admiring foil Willoughby, who bounces off her protagonist in a delightful way that unexpectedly leaves all of the hatred to the townsfolk. 
and whose corny attempt at heading trouble off at the pass with the revelation of his cancer invokes a far from predictable response. Also first rate, as ever, is Sam Rockwell, as Willoughby's pathetic shambles of a deputy, Dixon. Once again, Rockwell delivers a performance that ends up nowhere near what you'd expect from his character setup, a portrait of an ingrained generational racist thug who, again, somehow manages to touch on something sympathetic about the human condition. It's this character who seems to have fuelled a lot of the backlash against the movie across social media. But if you want to know more about those opinions, I shall leave you to look into them yourself and make up your own mind as to whether these people understand what a movie is or indeed does. <laughs> Three Billboards has all of the elements I really want in a movie, and McDonough for the most part does a bang-up job of proceedings. I haven't seen Seven Psychopaths, so I've got a blind spot there, but this is certainly a much more mature piece of work than in Bruges, even if it perhaps isn't as immediately accessible or rewarding. So why then did I not really enjoy it as much as I felt I should? Three Billboards is certainly off to a flying start on the awards circuit this month, and it seems there's an awful lot of appreciation out there for it, a great deal of which I'd argue it definitely deserves. But but something keeps me from loving this movie, and I still can't tell you precisely what it was. Uh, There are some niggling moments of dissonance in the character portrayals, which I suspect is somewhere at the root of it, and I think that might be the result of the film trying for one too many dark moments of humour along the way. Uh, certainly there are narrative foibles, and if <laughs> if you want to talk about minor minor niggles, Drew, this one really stuck in my craw. Why does Mildred seem to suddenly happen upon the billboards when, as we learn during the first of numerous scenes set on her veranda, she can see them clearly not 500 yards from her house? Picky, I know, but still oh, an annoyance. Also, unless I misunderstood it, hmm. the billboards are where her daughter was killed. Yes. So I'm um, yes. not sure why it was a sudden revelation of what can I do with these billboards. But Yes. Um, I've, I, latterly, I've come to assume that it was just a revelation of, wait a minute, I've got yeah, a plan, I, I could use I these. I assume but, that yes. it must be, yes, she's like, it's just a way of portraying the idea of, well, what could I do with these? But it, yes. It does play a little at the beginning of the film, like, that she's never really noticed the billboards before. Yeah, yeah. I think it's poorly signposted, but, well, no pun intended. But um, <laughs> the... <laughs> Oh dear, uh, genuinely no pun intended. I shall punish myself for that later. Um, yeah, picky, I know, but still an annoyance. Um, I doubt in the end it's entirely down to either of these factors. More likely a combination of many smaller and largely individually undetectable failings, but I wasn't able to escape the summation that three billboards was in the end less than the sum of its parts. I did enjoy it enough that I will commit to a second viewing in future, but I certainly won't guarantee when. I, I certainly enjoyed it a lot. And I thought Frances McDormand was fantastic in it. Oh, definitely. Uh, this is easily this is easily the best thing she's done, if not even better than Fargo. Yeah, I was actually I was having exactly that thought during this. I'm thinking, have I seen Frances McDormand better? And I've seen her in a lot of stuff, and even in sort of supporting roles, like playing opposite Sean Penn in This Is the Place. Mm. Um, and I was thinking, this is is possibly the best I've seen her. And the role was written specifically for her too. Perhaps mm-hmm. that helps to that um, synergy there. I mean, it's a very affecting film because of some of the topics it touches on, but then the the deeply comic moments in it too mm-hmm. are great. And I mean, while this is no Seven Psychopaths, because it does not have Tom Waits of carrying a rabbit around <laughs> or Christopher Walken, um, so clearly cannot be as good, but <laughs> it is, yeah, a very good film. But it did lose me after a point. There is an, well, it lost me, I, I don't know whether this is a problem with the film or that the, the film was making a point. There is a an incident with a window, mm-hmm. at which point nothing happens to the person that did it, mm-hmm. and that was driving me absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Why is this person not in prison? 
put this person in prison, they were a criminal, put them in prison, put them in prison now, put yes. them in prison, and nothing Espe- happened. Especially given the person who observes it happening, and yes. the immediate revelation of who they are. Exactly, so, um, although what I did come back to is there is a, um, and I really liked it because I happen to like where this thing's targeted because I, I despise mm. it so much, but there is a scene earlier on when Mildred is visited by a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she says, she starts talking about the laws about even just being a member of the Crips of the Bloods in Los Angeles and how um, even if you are just a member of, even if you never saw anything or heard anything or were aware of anything bad happening, mm-hmm. the fact you're a member of that club, of that gang, means you're culpable. Guilty by association. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is She's talking about the Catholic Church, obviously. And then I'm thinking, it does, is the film also saying that about the police force? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I was reading that into it because I couldn't explain how else why else nothing happened with the window thing but um, that's an interesting point actually i hadn't considered that it's the only way i could reconcile that with myself because it made no sense otherwise um, mm. that there were so many witnesses there's the one witness in particular that you mentioned craig mm-hmm. but so many other witnesses to this terrible crime and yeah. um it really really bothered me that nothing happened with that I suppose I can I can excuse I can excuse the bystanders doing nothing about it because we're led to believe that the the weight of opinion in the town is very much behind the police department in this one in the wake of the action that she has um, Mildred's been seen to take. Yes, but I certainly cannot get over that other person and the brief flash of their ID that we are given. Yes, <laughs> and yeah. the fact that the worst that happens is somebody gets told to clear out their desk. Yes, um, so that bothered me a bit, but where the film really lost me was the incident with the police station a mm-hmm. little after because it just seemed too far yes for that character I, I mean i understand the emotions of the character and the fact that perhaps rational thinking's not foremost on their mind but that mm-hmm. just seemed a step too far mm-hmm. it didn't seem to fit with the rest of the film yeah so after that point after the incident with the police station it lost me somewhat and then yeah i also didn't quite believe the the turning on a dime the pace with which the character who is an who is a victim in that scene uh, with which their attitude towards things changed i can believe that on a slightly longer arc but yeah yeah, yeah. exactly and in, in, in that moment i can't imagine that character being able to override their emotional fragility enough to mm. Yeah, rationalise that, that act the way they did. Yeah, yeah, the apparent anger with which they fueled it. That, yes. that character, the victim of that, has shown... I mean, what's great about the character... Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I have to say whose character is. We'll not say anything more about it, but mm. because it's Sam Rockwell, because you mentioned about how that he brings such unexpected depth to that character. And mm-hmm. that's a lot of Martin McDonough's writing also. But mm-hmm. that, yes, on a longer time scale that works on a longer time scale the end of the film works mm-hmm. but in the compressed time scale it's in no i don't buy it, it doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. uh, i love to mention the fact that that is at the police station while it, apart from the motivation for it happening i didn't buy mm-hmm. also it doesn't make any sense because there how could you not be aware of that happening <laughs> and also and also, once again, the fact that anyone escapes culpability for it and what is essentially a terrorist act in a small yes. town against against its beloved police force. And the worst that happens is anyone, someone walks up to the perpetrator and basically gives him a speech of, I don't suppose you had anything to do this, do with this, did you? No? Okay, then. Yes, the, the police <laughs> don't seem interested in investigating anything. That's it. Um, even when it's against them, but mm. yes, yeah, so... 
because I know there's one part of us like this person is not aware of it in one sense with one of their senses, but yeah, but can't feel or see, you know, light oh. and things. Uh, yes. Anyway, so when it comes to the end, when they're they take a when there's a a journey, it's oh. begun, and I, so by that point, yeah, that these two people are together, and this is how they're talking, and no, it, it no, it's the time scale. So. Can, uh, I was enjoying the film so much and I enjoyed Francis McDormand's performance to the end and Sam Rockwell's, yeah. but plot-wise, the, after the police station incident, the film just lost me. Yeah, um, the, and the, I was the, really disappointed by the final act. The, the character development curve just all of a sudden just becomes way too steep, way too sudden in the last yeah, it's, 15, it's a, 20 minutes. That's the kind of character arc that would play out over years. This not is, this what, is, a couple of days, I think. Yeah, this is something that this is something that would benefit from having been a, a, an eight-part miniseries or something. I can see how you can write this film that that there's a rapprochement or something mm. over some time, but it's just that the, the last act takes place in yeah. it is two or three days, maybe a week, because of the investigation that Sam Rockwell begins. Yeah. Right, you, yeah, I think maybe you're right. Actually, it probably can be achieved within two hours because I this felt longer than two hours to me. Yeah. There were points of this in which I was looking at my watch and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you could probably there are, there is stuff in this movie that you could probably excise or compress within the first couple of acts and probably make way for a more satisfying resolution uh, through the development of those characters in the final third. But um, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's I mean, other it people is. seem to love it. It is well written and it's definitely funny in a really kind of blackly comic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the characters are certainly sympathetic. I mean, I don't condone a lot of no. the actions, but certainly you can understand why they've done it. And mm-hmm. so few of the characters are as you would expect them to be. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly Sam Rockwell, his character, you think he's just this horrible racist thug. His mother is. His mother's a deeply unpleasant character. It's possibly the most simplistic character in the film, but mm-hmm. he is not what you think he is. Uh, not as simple and... He plays it so well. It's just that the film is let down by its own timing. That's that's the thing that's bothering me more than anything. And well, apart from that, so that one act I keep referring to, that's, it lost me because it, it was just too much. It leaves me just, I enjoyed it, but it leaves me just feeling deeply disappointed by the film mm. because it's, it's, oh, there was so much good in there, there's so much promise, and then that final act, it's like, oh, no, you blew it. What was your take, Scott? Yeah, kind of the same as you guys. Um, that's why I've been letting you ludicate uh, i felt i guess slightly disappointed at the end of this in the same way that I was disappointed at the end of uh, death of stalin and as much as i sat there thinking i enjoyed that quite a lot but it wasn't you know it didn't blow me away um and yeah okay i mean okay i don't spend up take a lot of stock in you know oscar buzz but you know or mm. awards nomination generally but you know it was there but more importantly i really like the writer director's previous works and you know it's the leading supporting actors are all, you know, fabulous from my favourites, so I was expecting it to be incredibly good and it was just sort of good. That's I think fair. as you say, great performances and some very funny blackly comic moments that apparently some people weren't expecting. Uh, mm-hmm. apparently a failure of research in what this guy's been been doing previously. But uh, <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. But the the way that it is also at some point it's just so much more serious. Uh, kind of the comic nature undercuts all that, and mm-hmm. the tr- there's a few dramatic character moments, as you're saying, that it's trying to get to, but it's never consistent enough in tone to really yeah. buy a lot of the characters. They're, they're good performances, but I don't buy who they're performing. Yeah, And that I, really pampered my enjoyment. I think every time, really, that you, you wanted to get invested in one of those characters, or in a particularly 
sort of dramatic moment as well. I don't know about yeah, you they'll guys. They'll do some but daft always, joke. And, yeah, uh, I always, I always spend the entire but... time thinking uh, someone's going to say something to try and crack us up in a second, though. And quite, quite often they didn't. But the movie sets up that expectation in the way that it veers mm-hmm. so, so yeah, wildly from it, from comedy to drama. It does rather undermine itself at some points, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that that was really what stopped me getting properly absorbed in it. That's the difference between me sitting there thinking this is a well put together film that I am enjoying and mm-hmm. just stopping thinking about that and getting truly absorbed and starting to connect the characters and all that stuff so uh, yeah I enjoyed it maybe a bit more than you guys coming just from the kind of tone of what you're saying but still it's definitely not a great film it's just a pretty good one and well I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah I'd, I'd I had really hoped it would blow me away and instead yeah. I'm uh, just thinking yeah. that it's actually a very good film you know certainly want to watch again and certainly want to recommend everyone watch yeah, but, I, yeah, I wouldn't not want brilliant. to put anybody off of watching it, Scott. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's a it's a much more mature film than In Bruges, awesome. as you say, Craig. But it's nothing like it's entertaining. No, <laughs> no, I still stand by that In Bruges is, is much more immediately accessible, and yeah. ultimately maybe even more rewarding. Whereas this film has the potential to be much more so. Um, yeah, but but it doesn't really it doesn't match up to. It yeah, to it. absolutely. Yeah. I think at that, I think in, when you watch in Bruges, which I did again I think a couple of years ago now, and I still found that the although there is only really the one really sort of significant moment of emotional payoff in that film when it does arrive, which is the revelation about um, Colin Farrell's character and what he's done in the past, that is a much more emotionally for all that that film predicates itself much more on humour overall than this one does that moment emotionally delivers um, a much more unexpected and sort of subsequently larger payoff than I think probably any one moment in this film with the exception of, I think, it's a real sort of silencing moment, the point at which um, Mildred's character says that final thing to her daughter as she's on her way out the door. Mm. Um, but that's an emotional in a different way. If, yeah, uh, um, because it's not like that. Um, it's a horrible thing to say. Mm. But um, it's like well, because there's people arguing or trying to hurt each other. But yes, and it's, so she has to live with those words. But mm-hmm. they are words. Mm-hmm. She didn't do any act or do cause anything that caused somebody harm. No. Whereas with Colin Farrell's character, so that's different. Indeed. But aye, there you go. So we're largely on agreement on that one. What about uh, what about the Jumanjis, Scott? Oh, the Jumanjis. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I, I do fall into a trap of just assuming a film will turn out to be garbage and ignoring it from a very limited number of data points, such as Jumanji reboot slash sequel slash reimagining slash whatever, and Jack Black. But sometimes <laughs> you just have to give the unexpected a chance, and you know, such as would be afforded if, say, The Greatest Showman had sold out and there's not much else out at the time. But sometimes, gentlemen, you just have to open your mind and, yes, your heart to find the greatest gift of them all, a watchable Jack Black performance. Oh my goodness. They times. do exist. They are just rare though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this this Venn diagram did not overlap in the way you expected. Yeah, I mean, I've said before several times though, you never ever think uh, that Jack Black in films a good thing, but it's not mm. always a bad thing. <laughs> he's probably been good in films more often than he's been bad, but for some reason he just carries the weight of the bad stuff much more. <laughs> oh, Jack, so misunderstood. This Jumanji, subtitled Welcome to the Jungle, presents a presumably updated setup from the Robert Williams vehicle of 95, although I've somehow contrived not to see that, so I can't really comment. I've um, contrived not to see it because it's a Robin Williams film from the mid-90s, around about the time he was doing 
flubber and things, and so it clearly would be a terrible <laughs> film and I would not yes. watch it. A group of high school kids are given a menial task of clearing out an old room as detention punishment, only to uncover a mysterious video game system from yesteryear. Hooking it up in the absence of anything more interesting to be doing, they are surprised to find themselves transported inside the game, inhabiting personas very different from their real-life counterparts. Spencer Gilpin, an awkward, studious type, becomes The Rock's Dr. Smolder Bravestone, who is, well, as you'd expect someone The Rock plays to be. Uh, Athletic football player Anthony Fridge Johnston, and somewhat estranged friend of Spencer, is reduced to being his sidekick and weapons valet, the diminutive zoologist Franklin Finbar, played by Kevin Hart, and Martha Capley, also the more studious type, but also rather more spiky and standoffish, becomes Karen Gillan's Ruby Roundhouse, a commando martial artist and dance fighter. And rounding out the squad is the popular, and we're told pretty, but self-obsessed Bethany Walker, who becomes Jack Black's Jack Blackish, Professor Sheldon Shelley Oberon, a cartographer, cryptographer, archaeologist and paleontologist, so all of your major ologies and graphers. After a period of adjustment and trying to get into character, they're informed by NPC Nigel, Reese Darby, good to see him in the film, that they must return a stone of power, the Jaguar's Eye, to the statue from whence it was stolen, which will presumably complete the game and allow them to return home. Unfortunately, they'll be chased and hindered by said thief, Russell Van Pelt, Bobby Cannavale, Bravestone's nemesis, who wants to use the stone to control all of the animals in Jumanji and profit somehow, presumably. Which is hardly the greatest scenario building that the world has ever seen, but it's perfectly serviceable for a bunch of action scenes peppered out with quips and occasional moments of character development and fish-out-of-water behaviour that you'd expect from this sort of thing. And wouldn't you know, it's entertaining enough watch the cast, both young and old, play off each other well enough, and this is the sort of thing that The Rock can charisma through in his sleep. The surprise actually comes from Jack Black, who I don't Mm. actively dislike, but wouldn't go out of my way to watch, who rings an awful lot out of what would seem like a one-note joke well played, you sly dog. And so it goes with solid enough action and a few clever gags relating to video game mechanics, proving to be a entertaining enough 90 minutes or so. Unfortunately, the film's two hours long, and by the end of that time, <laughs> has probably outstayed its welcome, but not by too much, and I doubt many people will come away from this film feeling that it was a complete waste of money unless you were expecting to see an Igmar Bergman revival and wandered into the wrong cinema screening. <laughs> on the other hand I doubt that anyone will come away from this film reliving the squad's adventures in their mind's eye eagerly awaiting the home release nope enjoyable enough as this was I'm sure its fate will be to fade pretty quickly to be stumbled across down the line on Netflix at which point you will have forgotten everything about it and can watch it again from scratch so in many ways great value oh well I'm going to see it on Friday so I reserve judgement <laughs> until, yeah, now... until I've sampled it <laughs> now that, that's all been a bit backhand complimenty but Jumanji presents a perfectly valid slice of throwaway entertainment it's worth a look on that basis. Three and a half, whatever's out of five. It's going to disappear from mines, I think, but it's gross pushing three quarters of a billion dollars, amazingly. Um, what? Yeah, it's been quite a surprise. So it- Yeah, because I was thinking when I was writing this, oh, I'll, I'll better make some kind of note about the, the genius that scheduled this up against the Star Wars film, and then I saw the money, money it's taken and went, oh, well, apparently there was enough room in the cinemas for the both of them. Yeah. So, yeah. Joke's on you. Yeah, <laughs> so a budget in the range of 90 to $110 million estimated, and it's... It's pushing $700 million, so going towards wow. three quarters of a billion. It's very, very slight, but yeah, I didn't expect much from it at all, Scott. I wasn't going to watch it at all. I only watched it when I found out you had done. Sorry. <laughs> but no, see, that's, I don't... <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly fine. Two hours running time is pushing it, but not by much. I expected to be very, very bored by the end, and I wasn't, mm. which is nice. The Rock <laughs> plays... What the Rock plays in most films, which I guess is an exaggerated version of The Rock. 
but yes, he's he's entertaining enough. He's got a lot of charisma. Karen Gillan, I'm certainly she's a, a lot more to do in this character wise than she does in the second Guardians of the Galaxy. Is not so bad, I guess. In the first one, she was just there, whereas this time yeah. she's just a bit of a character, so she's a bit more engaging. Kevin Hart is Kevin Hart, so you either like <laughs> that or you don't. I find him okay. There's probably sort of less interesting play between The Rock and Kevin Hart in this than there was in Central Intelligence. I kind of get a bit tired of Kevin Hart though because he very much plays the same character in every film he's in and it's really getting tiresome. I, I don't think I've seen a Kevin Hart film, but I've made up my mind I don't like Kevin Hart on the basis of all of the Kevin Hart interviews I've seen <laughs> in which Kevin Hart strikes the single note of oh, look at me and my diminutive stature, I don't get the women. And that seems to be the joke that he plays over and over Yeah, and he does over. that in this film. Yes. It yeah. seems like that's a tone anyway. And I was a bit concerned towards the beginning because... Is it Reese Darby, Scott? Yes. I know the guy who's face, but I can't remember his name. Yeah, um, your you fellow know. from Flight of the Conquest, Conquest. their manager. Yeah, I know, from, from what we do in the shadows and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, he turns up and then uh, The Rock starts explaining that He's an NPC. I'm like, okay, right. hmm. A bit exposition here that they're explaining all this, and then we've got to scene. There's a cutscene starts and it says, "This is a cutscene." Like, okay, that's okay. Then it explains what a cutscene is. And I'm like, yeah, I think the main target audience for this film knows what a cutscene is. Gets these video game references, and I was, I was really worried it was just going to start explaining everything. If it just said, "I think it's a cutscene," that'd have been okay. Yeah, but does it get to $750 million worth of audience without explaining that stuff? I don't know, but the point being, I was a bit concerned there. But mm. it doesn't It doesn't keep explaining after that. There's a, a wee bit of, like, you know, we've got three lives and things, and but it doesn't go heavily on the exposition of the, the type of world there. So it, it wasn't an issue. I was just a bit concerned towards the beginning. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think that you do get to that amount of money with an audience that at least... If, understands vaguely games because games are so big nowadays bigger than mm. hollywood so i think yes you do but it's forgettable fluff but i do not regret watching it i was recently entertained throughout jack black is pretty entertaining he's really milked what he's given and it's really quite funny there's not an awful lot to talk about with it but it's entertaining enough passable out of five shall we move on to it must we we must <laughs> okay then i've never quite understood the popularity of stephen king's work I've certainly certainly read a lot of it, but, but oh. beyond the age of, say, 15, I've struggled to really enjoy any of it. Uh, there, was, there was a certain point in my early teenage development where it was satisfying enough to read of a man running over someone's head in a sit-on lawnmower. But as I struggled to keep up with the vol- voluminous output amidst other literally con- uh, literary sorry, concerns, I increasingly came to realise that I, a young adult, was paying for an increasingly careless middle-aged author's cocaine habit with both my time and money. (laughs) It was pretty much slap-bang in the then overlap of age and reason that the TV adaptation of It came to my attention. Story in two parts, told 30 years apart, of a voraciously child-munching alien menace posing as a circus clown, became the talk of our circle of school friends. As such, it became something of a horror touchstone for my generation, and the reputation of Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown has become enshrined in the annals of great genre performances. Revisiting that adaptation recently, specifically following the first season of the vaguely similarly themed Stranger Things, I realised, as one so often does, with the removal of rose-tinted nostalgia goggles, that it was, in fact, a steaming pile of cack. That's how I always understood it to be. Yeah, I, I think was. people are remembering, like, there's like maybe 10 minutes of great Tim Curry gurning, and yes. then 
what, three hours and 50 minutes of just the worst garbage. Oh, oh, Have yeah. you both seen the original it? Yes. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. I've dodged that particular bullet. You have my sympathies, gentlemen. Watch the clips of Tim Curry, but everything else, no, no, no. No, no. especially don't watch the the revelation of the creature's true form at the end. I have have seen... um, Shelob's Cornish cousin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was kind of looking forward to Andy Muschietti's big cinema take. I, I know enough people who rate his 2013 effort Mama as evidence that he has at least some competency at this filmmaking lark. And I've seen I do, that film. No. <laughs> right. uh, well, I, I do believe that it, as a source novel, does have enough raw thematic potential to make a great film. Frustratingly, Muschietti does do a pretty decent job with a good deal of the movie, but also struggles terribly with others. The most satisfying aspects are almost all centred on the child cast and their antics, the authenticity of which forms a potent narrative, an emotional core, easily the film's trump card, if it can be said to have a trump card. Uh, led by Jaden Lieberer as Bill Denborough, the clown-precipitated death of whose younger brother Georgie opens the movie. The band of school misfits are reminiscent in all the best ways of such outfits as the Goonies, and it's no coincidence that Finn Wolfhard of the aforementioned Stranger Things has a major role here as Bill's best friend Richie. While the film is preoccupied with the non-clown-related exploits of the gang, it's reasonably satisfying stuff. Much of the dialogue was apparently improvised by the young cast, and it often works well. Presumably, Muschietti understands that the best way to get kids to act like kids is to let them be kids. <laughs> there is a convincing bond between the group which often seems to go awry in that fickle kid way, especially upon the integration into the group of Beverly, its sole female member. There is a beat in the film's climactic scene where this sense of slightly uneasy alliance pays off beautifully with a surprisingly moving yet also hilarious line of dialogue that almost made the film worthwhile in itself. Unfortunately, for all involved, there is less competence and evidence around the antagonist Pennywise. Now, I've always had a problem with the ways in which Pennywise, or rather the creature who chooses primarily the form of Pennywise, manifests itself. True, it is a shapeshifter, but it overwhelmingly presents itself through supernatural means, integrating itself into projector slides and then lunging grotesquely oversized out of the image, or translocating impossibly between spaces, for example. And it's this refusal to play by the premise's own logic that frustrates me the most. But it's not the reason why the horror element fails, and fails hard. Mm-hmm. Muschietti and his team have made a number of poor choices in the presentation of Pennywise, and more egregiously so the appearance of the creature's other manifestations <laughs> that serve to greatly undermine the moments where the director does admittedly pull off a genuinely unsettling trick here and there. The form the creature takes that sits halfway between Slenderman and Edward Munch's The Scream is a particularly bizarre and cartoonish example of this, and it is often inserted in the midst of scenes which might be quite effective otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Bill Skarsgård does an admirable job as the dominant Pennywise incarnation, walking a fine line along the border of ludicrous and menacing, but most of his work is undone by such nullifying aesthetic choices as the aforementioned and his sudden wibble-wibble head-wobbling dashes toward potential victims. None of which are ever successful, by the way. So give it up, clown boy. There's, <laughs> there's still enough of merit in it that if horror is your bag, I'm not going to tell you not to watch it. And it's certainly a step forward from the 1990 TV adaptation. I'm curious as to what the next instalment due in 2019 and set, like the TV movie 30 years later with the kids all grown up, will offer. It'll be interesting to see whether, absent of that childish playfulness and the camaraderie, part two is able to sustain itself in other ways. Not that the box office will mind much, because this instalment is currently the highest grossing R-rated horror movie in history. So, I suppose, who's the clown now? (laughs) 
I, I was enjoying this for what it was right up until the first time the kids visit Mr. Creepy's House of Horrors. Yes. And I remember thinking, oh good, it's wrapping up. I've had just about my fill of this. And then it kept going for like another hour without really doing anything much character-wise or anything like that to warrant it. And then just wraps up it just after the point where it stopped caring entirely. So I'm going to give it up at that point. But yeah, you, you probably said all I, I would want to say about that film as well. It is very much not scary. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it has, like you say, it's got these moments where it's built a really creepy atmosphere and Skarsgård's doing well. And oh no, they've just decided to show us some teeth instead. Yeah. And it just it has to continually undercut itself with like jump scares and just you know, cheap ways out. It's frustrating because I, I almost... In fact, no, not even almost. I did buy in in that opening five minutes. I thought, after after the scene where Georgie comes a cropper, I thought, oh man, this film isn't afraid to hit hard. Look, if um, this film was just about a scary clown that had no supernatural powers altogether, I think it would be yeah. much better. <laughs> yeah, that's what annoys me so much. It sets up that this <laughs> this creature is just a creature. Um, you know, a shapeshifter nonetheless, but then it primarily manifests itself through supernatural means, yes. which is never explained and is completely incoherent. Yeah. <laughs> I hated this film so much. You're kidding. No. Oh, oh, you're such a connoisseur of horror as well. <laughs> I, feel if, I feel if nothing else in this podcast, we've established that about you. I know this comes as a surprise to find that I think a horror film is a complete abomination of film, but um, mm. there, there we go. Uh, First of all, I'm talking about Stephen King. I think Stephen King is capable of creating an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So I can see why his films or his books are entertaining. However, the man can't write for Toffee. No. He can create an interesting story, but it's best if he just gives that story to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's, like Frank Darabont in particular. I was going to say, well, let's let's talk about how little Stephen King understands about the adaptation of his um, his material into movies anyway. This is the guy who famously absolutely hates The Shining. Which, yes, but... <laughs> by by all objective measures, the film adaptation of which is infinitely superior to the book. I don't much care for the shining in the film either, but we can never be friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the but I just want to mention if we're talking about Stephen King and film Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> yes. So I really think it can create an interesting story, even if stuff that of his that I do like the Shawshank Redemption I think is fantastic. Mm. The mist I really like. I think the connection mm-hmm. here is Frank Darabont. Yeah. Um, Stand By Me, actually, I really like it. can t- tend to forget that's a Stephen King film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Green Mile. Like the book, the film is massively overindulgent in length, mm-hmm. but there's interesting stuff in there. I absolutely loathe The Green Mile. I don't understand what the fascination is with that film. But, uh, yeah, in terms of horror stuff, which is meant to be his mainstay, he yeah. can't write for Toffee, and nothing he's done has ever been scary. No. So and where that, and where where he does have a significant work that makes for a significant adaptation. Uh, so I've made the note, of course, misery. Then, unfortunately, for every misery, you have twenty maximum overdrives. <laughs> yeah. Um. Where where was I with my point? Yeah, I was talking about the fact that yeah, he can create an interesting story. He just can't write for Toffee. So yes. um, I'm assuming I know you mentioned that there's some uh, improvised dialogue in here. So maybe that's actually part of the problem for why the list, but. I think a lot of the problem I have with this is that it's come from his words and mm. none of it makes sense. I mean, and everything about the film is annoying me. First of all, it's not scary. Not even slightly. Not once. Oh, not once. When the, the thing comes out of the projector screen for a moment, I thought, oh, that's a bit creepy. But then I was just really pissed off with the loud noise that accompanied it because Andy Muschietti seems to think that loud and scary are synonyms. 
Mm. Because this is the loudest film I've ever seen. And it was driving me crazy. Like, it's like every time the clown appeared, it's like my speakers were blown out. I was like, no, that's not scary. Stop it now, please. Um, and the, the orchestral stabs, the jump scares, all stuff I hate with a passion. And I don't like horror films. And that's because pretty much every horror film I've ever seen, bar one or two, have been terrible. And I want to be scared. That's why I keep trying. I would love one of them to actually have an effect on me. But they're never scary. To the point where I genuinely wondered, and, like, and I quickly put this thought away because of the languages in this, but I genuinely wondered at one point what the rating for this film was because I was thinking this felt like a kid's film because there was not one thing that happened in it that would be scary to anybody except children. I really felt that strongly, that this was this aimed at kids with what was meant to be scary in it because nothing is scary for an adult. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then the, the bits that annoy me too, like the, the fact that somebody gets somebody's initial carved in their stomach with a knife and they don't go to the hospital! Why? Why would you not go to the hospital when somebody carves your stomach yes. open with a knife? Neither hospital nor police, which yeah. would seem to be more. And then the kid that does that is, um, well, he was A, a truly appalling actor, but B, a psychopath for reasons of of Stephen King can't write any character development, I guess, <laughs> because that's the other thing. I'm watching this and thinking, wow, imagine this film had any characters. This film doesn't have any characters. It has archetypes maybe because there's the kid with the glasses he's got glasses there's the black kid he's black <laughs> there's the fat kid um the fat kid's fat um there's the girl kid she's he a girl does also like new kids on the block um, <laughs> there's a girl kid she's a girl and has a, a horrible backstory that doesn't really need to be there it adds nothing to the film but i'm guessing is in the book um oh. and then there's the nerdy jew kid he's a nerdy jew that's the that is the characters these characters have that's that's the their entire description you can't see anything more about them and i'm watching this and thinking actually finn wolfhard was pretty poor in this but film finn wolfhard's presence there and the, the tone and the time period and everything was making me like i just wish i was watching stranger things this is making me think of stranger things except it's good please be stranger things and um, the only reason i watched it then is because i've never not made it to a film at the end of a film apart from once as i mentioned a couple of podcasts ago yeah I just, it's not scary the characters aren't it's massively over long this is only the first part it's the loudest thing i've seen in a long time and loud and scary are not the same yeah i hated this film genuinely hated it oh yes it is a bad 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 film i do not like it take it away please and shoot it three out of five <laughs> yes yes, I, yes I, i've got a rather sort of wishy-washy feeling about this film i've not made up my mind hugely off how the I, feel about it. I just get amused listening to you get angry about a film that doesn't deserve your anger <laughs> this film does deserve my anger because it's terrible it's not it's not significant enough to deserve that level of emotional involvement at all i was forced to it, watch it won, this film i did not choose to watch this film i was forced to watch it by stephen king himself who came out of my house and forced it into my eyeballs it deserves my anger i'm surprised there was room in there for all the heroin <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear, there we are. Um, anyway, let's move, let's move swiftly on because we've been recording an hour already. Yeah, so let's move on to The Foreigner. Now, we of course all know and love Jackie Chan, the crazy kung fu whose inventive object-based fighting style and apparent willingness to murder himself with stunts for entertainment <laughs> has endeared him to all but society's most disturbing monsters. <laughs> 
you'd be forgiven for forgetting it, of course, but Chan also plays serious roles now and again, and I think I remember him voicing some frustration around the time of the Shinjuku incident back in 2009, I think it was, that he couldn't get any more dramatic roles. But here, a scant eight years later, comes the Martin Campbell-helmed The Foreigner, adapted from the rather less politically correctly titled novel. Here Chan plays a restaurant owner, Nong Ming Kwan, whose life is ruined when his daughter is killed in a bank bombing, claimed by a hitherto unheard of IRA offshoot. Distraught, he leaves his business behind and resolves to kill those responsible. A tall order for a restauranteer, perhaps, but it will, it will come as little surprise to find that there's more to Quan than meets the eye. Turns out he was a US Special Forces asset, who suffered his own set of tragedies before coming to the UK for a quiet life with his daughter which gives him a particular set of skills that will make him a nightmare for certain people. People like Pierce Brosnan's definitely not Jerry Adams Liam <laughs> Hennessy, the Northern Irish First Minister, ex-IRA member turned politician who Quan insists must know who's responsible, despite his protestations of innocence and ignorance. Turns out that he actually is ignorant on this count, but not willfully so, at least at the start of proceedings, as he doesn't know who's responsible and sets about shaking down the old crews for news of who done it, leading him into a very tangled web that points back in his own family's direction. All the while, Quan proves to be a thorn in definitely not Jerry Adams' side, going from insistent to heavily armed with improvised explosives, and still also insistent that Hennessy provide him with the names of those responsible, while outwitting and evading his guards from the old firms. Meanwhile in London, the terrorist cell is setting up for another atrocity, putting a clock on all of this investigation malarkey that Quan will, and I trust we're not spoiling anything here, ultimately bring to an end in a very final and bloody fashion. Now, when you invoke the term genre cinema, it's altogether too easy for people to get a bit sniffy about it, and I know because it's exactly what I do when people start talking about horror films in those terms, <laughs> um, but it... It is, see previous conversations, <laughs> um, but it is, however, a useful shorthand to say that if you're not a fan of, or just not in the mood for, an action flick with some martial arts flavouring, although perhaps slightly, surprisingly lightly flavoured, given the lead actor, then perhaps it's best to let this one pass you by. Chan's certainly capable enough of hitting the emotional notes required, and the plot's strong enough to hang a revenge fantasy on, but let's just say you're probably not going to want to go into this film expecting a character piece or an in-depth explanation of post-Good Friday political dynamics. No, it's unashamedly an action film, and one that feels more like it escaped from the early 90s or late 80s when they were still doing these things properly and not making Fast and the Furious films. The Foreigner has a number of, by today's standards, pretty brutal action sequences, and Martin Campbell has the experience to keep things moving along crisply and efficiently. Now, the only thing that struck me as odd when watching this was that we're now apparently far enough removed from the mainland IRA bombing campaigns to use them as background for mid-budget B-schedule action thrillers, but then I suppose this film would be very different beast if it was set on Valverde, and there's any number of equally damaging events worldwide that saw adaptation slash exploitation sooner, but somehow this feels a little different, but perhaps that's just the fortunate background of the current political situation in Northern Ireland. But that aside, this is a solid little action film, and for genre fans earns a pretty easy recommendation. If that's not your bag, sail on through, but for us hankering after a little throwback action, it's well worth dropping onto your Netflix queue. Yeah. I was looking forward to this. I thought it was quite interesting. I like Jackie Chan a lot. And there are there are bits of this I like. The fact he's given something a little more dramatic to do, I guess is good. A film never really grabbed me. And I don't know if it's because of the things I'm going to mention in a minute, or I noticed the things I'm going to mention in a minute more because it didn't grab me, I'm not sure. But oh, despite being written by a British writer, um, based on the not-at-all dodgy-sounding 
title The Chinaman, which is not a surprise that the name has been changed to The Foreigner for a 2017 release. Yeah. Despite that being a British book, the the screenwriter is from the United States and the film is full of Britain as written by an American irritations that things like, well, first of all, Pierce Brosnan's role is not a role that exists or has ever existed, so I'm not quite sure what he's supposed to be. Then there's things like, we can't take this plane on, or this bomb onto just a normal plane, that won't have enough impact. We'll have to take it onto the Queen's fleet, one of the planes of the Queen's fleet, which isn't a thing, but okay then. Mm. Um, so kind of minor irritations like that that I didn't like, but then it just becomes, I don't know, you're supposed to feel for Jackie Chan, and you do at first because this horrible thing has happened. But then he starts bombing things. And like, yeah, I, I've got no sympathy for you anymore. I, I now you want you to go to prison also. Because they tried to play up the idea that he's this great expert and that um, so he's any bombs he plants so it must be very expertly done. But yeah, that's how that's how bombs work. That's how the, physics works, yeah. There, there's absolutely <laughs> yeah. a really good bomb expert can do it so there's no margin of error. And no innocent person's ever been hurt in a bomb designed to target just the bad guys ever, right? <laughs> so when this person's method of getting information is to start bombing things, I've suddenly lost all sympathy for the cart and want this cart to be punished also. So I, I stop seeing Jackie Chan as a hero and start seeing Jackie Chan as another villain. <laughs> as a problem. Yeah. Um, but Drew, please, he don't want trouble. Yeah, so for that reason, I just stopped caring. And as soon as I stopped caring about any of the characters, then I simply wasn't going to care about the action or not. It's like, eh, yeah. He's punching somebody. Are they both going to die? I hope they both die. Please let them both die. <laughs> so in the end, I was very disappointed. And then it gets to the end where you have police officers murdering people for for, for really bad writing, I'm guessing. But that just really, really bothered me. Oh. Um, like, what does this big, film Big need? problem over here, that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, police officers just murdering people. I believe that happens all the time. I mean, this, the yeah. guy wasn't a Brazilian electrician. And that's generally <laughs> when it happens. <laughs> He wasn't a Brazilian. The people they killed were white. They weren't a Brazilian electrician or an unarmed man in a car in South London. So um, this wouldn't happen. Yeah, it's no. It, it disappointed me. I was really looking forward to this. Well, I was looking forward to it and looking to see Jackie Chan and, and a bit of Braun home. Um, uh-huh. But no, nah, a bit crap, unfortunately. Aww. I mean, some of the action scenes are well handled, and as Scott said, I mean, Martin Campbell can do action scenes well. It's just that. The, the action scenes happened to be in a film in which I didn't care about anything that was happening by that point, so they were wasted on me. All right, let's talk about Mother. Let's stay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, again, unfortunately, we must. Yeah, You know when you're renovating an old decrepit house, well, your partner, who's a renowned but currently blocked writer, procrastinates, and then strangers start showing up and insinuating themselves into your daily routine with little or no motive and an oblique biblical allegory. No, me neither. But apparently Darren Aronofsky does, or at least he thinks he does, and that's mother. <laughs> apparently, or maybe not. When your mission statement is seemingly to willfully obscure and abstract any attempt at audience interpretation, it becomes something of a moot point. I don't have a lot to say about mother, not just because I didn't like it or I want to demonstrate my disdain, but because I generally don't know what to say. Of the three of us on this podcast, I'm probably, probably safe to say I'm the least fluent in the interpretation of cinema, but that's not to say I don't enjoy a challenge. When that challenge is a fundamental shroud of obfuscation masquerading as allegory, however, <laughs> I, I lose the will and the incentive to pursue the matter further, and I'm not surprised audiences have been so split over this movie. 
Jennifer Lawrence is the presumably titular homeowner. Javier Bardem, her seemingly distant husband, referred to in the credits only as him. We are to assume their relationship is loveless, or at least increasingly looking so, as him subjects them both to the misery of his writer's block. Blah blah, some precious glass thing him keeps in a jar. Things take a dogleg when a strange couple, Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer, turn up at the premises, at once ingratiating themselves with the writer and paying scant regard to his wife. Adopting the persona of the demure housewife, Mother contents herself, pottering about, while the mysterious duo express adulation of the creator, mm, the creator, and occasionally slip off for some rumpy-pumpy in various rooms. The house has a heart, by the way. Mm. To cut a long story short, the same scenario plays out multiple times as the mysterious couple are joined first by their two sons, one of whom murders the other, then, in the wake of this act, further unidentified strangers, until such a time as the house is overflowing with unwanted visitors and events transpire that most closely resemble the storming of the barricades at the end of Les Mis, albeit with assault rifles. It's at this point that a couple of scenes play out which really upset some audiences, and I have to say I found them somewhat unsettling myself, not least of all because the film doesn't really do much to earn the tonal shift. Mm. Um, Like I said before, I do like to be challenged, but on the proviso that I have been afforded the option of selecting a challenging movie. At no point prior throughout its running time, or indeed its marketing, does Mother suggest that its audience can expect it to become a Gaspar Noe movie. And if I was ready to give up on it at the hour mark, then I certainly felt like slamming the door in its face as the credits rolled. If Aronofsky is indeed to continue indulging himself in religious subtext, then I fully expect his next movie to be 168 hours in length and feature Willem Dafoe walking up and down the aisles of a DIY store for six straight days, before finally settling on a light switch he likes, and then putting his feet up for 24 hours. At least with Noah, he and star Russell Crowe had the good grace to troll the Pope into finally admitting the absurdity of the source material as he declared, quote, it is as it was, unquote. A gesture that left me chortling in glee for a good few days after. Heck, he even gave us rock monsters. I like the rock monsters. Mother has none of that incidental stupidity to supplement its cause. Rather, it just feels like a bad movie. But what do I know? Well, but you seem to know quite a lot because you seem to be largely reading my thoughts for most of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, and first of all, I'm going to mention the positives of this film on a production <laughs> level. <laughs> I, I almost did stay silent there. On a production level, it's well made, mm-hmm. and I have never hated Michelle Pfeiffer so much in my life. I've never hated her at all. In fact, so the fact that I. I- Dislike that character so much. I was going to say, I was so ready for Pfeiffer. <laughs> um, but, I mean, she's meant to be a dislikable character, and I, mm. oh boy, did I dislike her. So she did a really good job there, I guess. Um, mm. Mm. Okay, I'm done with the positives. Uh, <laughs> it is, it's so navel-gazing and self-indulgent and film shouldn't they? It's unbelievable. Mm. It's very stagey, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it's somehow much more film studio in the A than Pi. Yeah, which was exactly what I was going to say. Work. You took words out of my mouth. Um, I was thinking, yeah, you should have like progressed from Pi forward. It seems to have regressed to a, a pre-Pi stage. And there's, I mean, it's difficult to care about this film because I genuinely disliked every single character in the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I guess most of them you're meant to. I say Michelle Pfeiffer is spectacularly unlikable, but. Yes, there's no sympathy for Jennifer Lawrence either because um, when Michelle Pfeiffer is talking to her, she's sort of demure and apologising to her instead of just telling her to get the hell out of her house. So, like, mm. so stand up for yourself. I've got no um, sympathy for you and I don't care. 
then by the end and what it turns into, it's like, you have not earned this. Mm-hmm. Um, not that any of this makes sense, but it, it's so... I mean, there's all this biblical allegory that's in it, um, allegories that are in it, and there are imagery that suggests that you could read all sorts of things into it, and you read different interviews at different times and they suggest the actors and the directors say at different times it's meant different things, so I'm not entirely sure they know. Mm-hmm. But it's... Um, it's got all this imagery and absolutely nothing to bear the weight of that at all. The one the one thing that could have worked, and Aronofsky has demonstrated that he can pull it off before, is that horrible sense of being trapped in some sort of um, fever dream, hmm. um, uh-huh. where Jennifer Lawrence's character, and for the most part I assume that's what the tonally it was gunning for, because her sort of bewilderment as she sort of stumbles about the house and just every time she turns around and goes into another room to find other people there, and all they want to do is sort of smile at her and reassure her that it's okay without saying what it is. Yeah. Um, and that horrible feeling of, uh, we've all had we've all had that dream or something similar. And Aronofsky's demonstrated in, like I say, his, his, his very first film, as you touched on, Scott Pye, his, his, up until this point, his most film student to feel in film. <laughs> Pye worked largely um, on that level. And also, I would argue, probably uh, Requiem for a Dream uh, captures a, a good deal yeah. of that essence as well, mm-hmm. albeit in a much more grounded and, and realist way. So it's frustrating to think that I'm assuming that's what he was going for here, and it just falls flat in its face. And I think a lot of it is to do with the staginess of the, the performances. Like Javier Bardem, I just couldn't get behind. I just, I just, I, I really did want to just slap most of the characters in this yeah, film. Yeah, exactly, exactly what I almost said to it. Yeah. Especially Michelle Pfeiffer, just goes, there's something so unlike about her characters, but everybody else, mm. I want to punch everybody's. Mm. And it's just, I don't know what I can say, like, there's, there's a kind of, you can see that it might work. You're talking about the fever dreams and stuff too, and there's like, she's, there's some sort of mysterious powder that she dissolves into all water and drinks through, and it's, mm. It's in a really ancient bottle, and I don't know what it's mm-hmm. meant to be. I can't think it's meant to be some something like laudanum or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, yeah, some of the stuff makes sense if you just like look at this a kind of a withdrawal thing or something, maybe mm-hmm. on a very mundane level. But that would actually work. But it's all the other stuff. It, there's all this weight put on it. There's the um, biblical allegory and Javier Bardem as Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all this apparent. And I say, I'm not reading this into the film at all because. This has come from, they would say, from reading interviews and things and quotes from the cast. There's apparently something about the artist-muse relationship and then there's about the, well, you can see that maybe they're trying to ask the, the idea of the destruction of Mother Earth and things. and But it's all, all this really sort of heavy weight in it. On a, and no, on and a none, of, that none of those, none of those theories get seen through to any yeah. kind of conclusion either. It's too muddled. Yeah, it's too muddled. And the the actual the core of the film and the structure and the story, which really isn't there at all. There is mm-hmm. no story. There is no story. It, yeah. it can't hold up all these great themes that are being thrust mm-hmm. upon it. It does not have the strength to hold them up. Mm. It's symbolic. Symbolic of what? Just general symbolism. Yeah. Yes. Um, there is a there's a quote from a writer for Entertainment Weekly. I just, I'm going to mention this because I, I thought it summed up reasonably well. Like, Darren Aronofsky's mother is Rosemary's baby amped up into a fugue state of self-indulgent solipsism. He's an artist and he really wants you to know that he's been thinking a lot about what that means. <laughs> Unfortunately, his gaze is so deep into his own navel that it's just exasperating. <laughs> it's like, yes, he's, he's the tortured artist and you, you must know what it's like to be a tortured artist. And like, mm. yeah, no, it's... Uh, I mean, 
I don't dislike this film as much as say I dislike it because there was at least something here that I could try to grab onto and it's the it's well made technically mm. but it, it initially just, presents a challenge that you want to engage with but yeah, then it but pulls by the, the end, rug out from under you so sharply yeah 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 uh, it's it's so self-important and it does not have it's the got nothing to be important to be about yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah i'm glad to hear you come on to this stuff because I'd, I'd had a very hard week before i watched mother and i was not in my sharpest of states when i watched it and i had no clue what was going on and i didn't know if that was a fault with the film or with me but i'm, uh, I'm glad to see it's uh, perhaps more to do with the, the film structure than it is uh, i just yeah. found this to be a, a relentless tumult of stuff that i couldn't get any purchase on at all mm-hmm. um I, I probably wasn't as shocked by the end because at that point i was just staring blankly at it I, <laughs> I, I i didn't know what it was trying to do i didn't know what it was trying to tell me and uh yeah so, so it could have done whatever it likes and it probably just met with the same okay yeah whatever <laughs> reaction to it so um it's the sort of film that if i was going to really give a fair opinion to i suppose i'd have to watch it again but i don't really feel any <laughs> pressing urgency to do that now i will say if you as we're going to hint at before if if you want a different movie if you don't want if you want something that is you know well out of the ordinary non-marvel Yes, it's mm-hmm. it's definitely that. So if that's your jam, this may be your marmalade. But it, I, it's I the least conformist film you will have stumbled <laughs> across in a cineplex any times uh, recently. Yes, so it, it it does have that going for it. That is actually a positive thing. I, I would argue, however, um, I, I, yeah, I couldn't make head nor tail out of it, and mm. as such, I don't really have a valid opinion other than. Uh, uh, I really, I really <laughs> like the poster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, and again, another thing that disappointed me because I really knew very little about uh, Mother apart from it, some you know, divided audiences, but yeah. some some people are saying that it is really great. And of course, I'm a big fan of Darren Aronofsky's work, and I like most of the actors that are in this. You know, mm. the, uh, fans of most of them, or at the very least, um, agnostic to them. So yeah, uh, seemed like it would have a lot of positives, but yeah, it was just all nonsense. The, what you say there, though, Scott, is you know part of the point, and this is this is this is why I took um, such exception with a great deal of it. It seemed you didn't know much about about it going into it. Nobody did because the filmmakers made um, a, a decision to not release any information about what it was beforehand. Mm. Um, and that's partly why I felt so aggrieved by the final sequences and the film it turned out to be because I kind of, I kind of, I kind of want to be given the option of going into that film before. I don't want to go into a film blind not knowing what it is and yeah. find out that it, it, it's going to present some of those images that it absolutely has not earned the right to do. And just thrust them in my face and go. Do you feel challenged? Do you feel challenged? Mm. Well, yeah. um, yes. For on one of the rare occasions where I did actually contextually, and you know, if I if I were to pay, you know, as it, as it turned out, as it turned out, rent, rental is a lot cheaper than going to the cinema. But if I had gone to the cinema and on blind faith on on the back of Aronofsky's reputation, yeah. paid ten twelve quid to see this, I'd be furious. This would be yes. one of the occasions where I would come back out and immediately ask for my money back. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that, but. Seems like a, a fair response to it, and it's yeah. You know, Maybe that's the response. It's probably wanted. what I was looking for. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, but yeah, when I was watching it, it, just feels like a film that's very pleased with itself, and I was not quite mm. so pleased with it. Yeah, it so. does. It very much feels that. Doesn't <laughs> and it? It's, it's not. Things, it's not often I actively dislike Javier Bardem in something either. Yeah, yeah I, I just I disliked everybody again. I think that's part of the point. Except that you're supposed to presumably have sympathy for Jennifer Lawrence, but I didn't. Mm. No, because why should we not be with all this rubbish? Like exactly, 
I mean, maybe that plays into the idea that she's supposed to be Earth because she has said that that's what it's meant to be, that she's yeah. Mother Earth. But I'm like, eh, really? Again, I don't that, that, that doesn't play out to any sort of logical conclusion. So, or doesn't play out logically, rather. No, and it certainly then, plays to a conclusion. But And then even you have this, that sort of Mother Earth allegory and stuff. But then what is the end meant to represent? <laughs> I said, yeah. Oh, it's just weird, and it seems to speed through the end and get extra mental with every minute that passes. Yeah, it's definitely not a film where logic applies, and it does seem that it's... I don't know, it's, it, is, it is so loose in what it presents that, okay, yes, you could read it many different ways, but that just mm-hmm. means, ultimately, it doesn't really read as any of them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, those, those films are out there, though, that adopt that approach and work, but this is not one of them. <laughs> but there you go. So can I, just before you go on, I've just noticed a quote here about Mother um, from Aronofsky, or sorry, a fact, which kind of explains a lot. Apparently, Aronofsky wrote the screenplay in five days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd heard yeah. that. I thought you were going to say just one word. I thought you were going to yeah. say cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> five days. It kind of shows. I, I, are he and Jennifer Lawrence not an item now as well? I, I, I seem to remember reading somewhere. Yeah. Oh, not anymore. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised. I can imagine this being an elaborate ruse on his part just to get to spend a lot of time with her, and he went into production not really knowing what it was about. <laughs> he just wanted to spend some time with Jennifer Lawrence to ingratiate himself. I don't know. But, uh, yes. Maybe maybe she watched Mother too, and that's why they're not together anymore. <laughs> Aye. Anyway, Star Wars episode Yakety Yak, The Last Jedi. Star Wars episode 8. Is that right? The Last Jedi? Sounds about right. Um, Episode something. At this point, I'm as tired as writing about these new Star Wars films as you don't are hearing me complain about them, so I'll try and rattle through this with some alacrity. Um, following on from the patricidal events of The Force Awakens, we joined the Rebels discovering a fleet of First Order Dreadnoughts reverse parking into their orbital driveway, throwing laser rocks at their space swings, the fannies. Um, overmatched, the Rebels beat feet, with Oscar Isaacs, Poe Dameron leading an assault, on one of the bigger dreadnoughts, with an ultimately doomed fleet of bombers that aren't like any craft I've ever seen in my X-Wing video game training, grumble grumble, as well as being a showreel for Hollywood's tenuous grasp of how gravity works in space. The rebels jump away through hyperspace, but are followed immediately by the baddies, tracking them through some techno-babble means that will require someone to slip on board the enemy flagship and disable it, that duty falling to John Boyega's Finn and Kelly Marie Tran's Rose Tico, but first they need to undertake some harebrained excursion to the planet of the Dinosaur Derby to find an obviously untrustworthy hacker in Benicio Del Toro's DJ. Meanwhile, Daisy Ridley's Ray is camped outside Luke Skywalker's shack, hoping to annoy him into training her like it's Project Mayhem or something, to which he eventually sort of agrees, although any training that happens seems to be largely accidental, and she will, however, uncover more of her connection to the Force and Adam Driver's psychopathic hemo man-child Kylo Ren. Uh, She seems to think that he can be turned from the dark side, but from the way Luke tells it, that doesn't seem likely. All of this leads into an ending that I suppose I'd best leave somewhat vague, in case you're one of the six or seven people on the planet that's not seen this. Uh, but suffice to say, it channels the Empire Strikes Back in tone and outcome, if not actual events or quality. There's been a lot of whining from the usual man-children about The Last Jedi, as there is about any film with women in it these days, but I'm not completely clear on what their complaint is. Neither, I suspect, are they, as best <laughs> I can gather. It reduces to writer-director Ryan Johnston introducing some small degree of subtlety into the Star Wars universe. Loath as I am to admit it, they may have something approaching a point, as a franchise built on laser space wizards is not the natural home for subtlety. 
as such, when a couple of mysteries set up in The Last Jedi are discarded in passing like a piece of garbage, well, it's the sort of trick that would work well in Brick or some other neo-noir piece, but in The Valley of the Laser Space Wizards? Well, I can see why people were annoyed. I was annoyed. Not because of any threat to the patriarchy or whatever the nuttier of the fanboys are peeved about, but because the situation at the end of this film is essentially the same as the start of this film, and not moved on very much from the start of The Force Awakens, if we're very honest about it. So, it all just feels like a waste of five and a half, or whatever it is, hours of my rapidly diminishing lifespan. (laughs) Also, there's about a one hour stretch of this film where everyone acts like they've just woken up and groggily makes the worst decisions possible, sometimes with a willful lack of knowledge, because otherwise this film would have no plot at all. Particular anti-plaudits go to here to poor Domhnall Gleeson's General Hux, who's not only an idiot, but described as such by his boss, Supreme Leader Diana Ross, who is also an idiot, because his reasoning for having an idiot as the commander of his space navy is that he's easy to manipulate. You don't need to manipulate him, you dummy. You're his commanding officer. Order him. Unless (laughs) chains of commands work differently for space fascists. (laughs) For all this, now they're firmly in the Star Wars A Year groove, it feels less necessary to give you much of a review for them. You pretty much know what you're going to expect, and this despite the few aforementioned wrong few things that aren't really all that important in the grand arc of things, pretty much delivers what you'd expect. It's fine. I can no longer muster the enthusiasm for this franchise to either love or hate anything that it does. It's just more background noise, and this is as good as I can reasonably expect background noise to be. I I perhaps hope that we'll look back in a few years and say that this was the permission slip given to every director and production team that follows to do something completely different in the established sorry, from the established Lucas-based Star Wars films, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Meh out of five. <laughs> I I saw a thread of people venting about the fact, and this is all I know about this film, right? I've made a conscious decision to avoid anything to do with it up until this point. I happened across a thread of people on Twitter who were venting about the fact that Poe Dameron drifts an X-Wing, and I said, (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I don't care to see the films anymore, I just don't care to associate with the people who care about them. (laughs) Oh, dear. Oh my goodness. Yeah, um, so in an episode where I have hated quite a lot of the films that we've talked about, do you want to guess where I am on this film? You love it, Drew. You think it's the best. I do, actually. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I do. Um, Well, with the, the caveat that the further I get away from my childhood, the less good I think any Star Wars film actually is. Mm hmm. When I saw this the first time, and I've seen it twice now, I thought this was the best Star Wars film there's been yet. Oh. I've walked that back a bit, because the more you think about it, the more it falls apart. Um, so I think The Empire Strikes Back is still the best. But I really, really enjoyed this, although I do have big provisos. First of all, the humour... Well, some of the humour's okay, but the comedy is terrible and never, ever works. Um, unfortunately, the film starts with a section like that, with the prank call thing that's going on. I've no idea what's going on with that, why I thought that was a good idea. And it also starts with having Domino Gleason in it, who, amazingly, is even worse than he was in The Force Awakens, which is a hell of a feat, given how terrible he is in that. If they wanted to call this film Star Wars Episode 8, Domino Gleason, the terrible plastic people, because Emperor Snoke looks ridiculous. People said, oh, he's so good, he's such a believable card. And I'm like, you people need new eyes. Like, all the people who said that Grand Moff Tarkin looked great in Rogue One. 
He's terrible. <laughs> um, he looks like a plastic person. And see now, this I don't know for certain, but Disney claimed after Carrie Fisher died last year now, is it? That they weren't going to replace her in any scenes with a CGI creation. And I'm damn certain did, because there's a couple of scenes where I'm absolutely sure it's not her. But I don't know whether that's actually me thinking that, or perhaps because she's, she'd had so much plastic surgery, there's a slight, I don't mean this in a mean way, but there's a slight sort of unrealness to her. But there's a few scenes where I was absolutely certain it wasn't her. It was a, a CGI creation. But, yeah, so there are things that start that bothered me. The, the humour, the comedy falls flat through, and they keep trying it. And yet Domino Gleason is appalling. It's truly, truly, truly awful. It's like, I don't really like Domino Gleason all that much, but often he can at least act. In this, he seems to have forgotten entirely. I can't remember because I've only watched The Force Awakens when it was in cinemas. Does his character have an American accent in this? No, he's English. He's no. got an English oh, accent. Oh, right, okay. That's not so bad because I cannot abide him when he's asked to do an American accent. No, but he's ridiculous. I mean, I, mean, I thought that the scene where he's at the sort of Nuremberg rally type thing at the end of The Force Awakens was bad, but he manages mm. to top that for awfulness at the start of um, this. <laughs> Interesting. Like Ryan Johnson directed and wrote this, uh, so he had a lot of control over this. And he pretty much tries, I mean, well, if it's not original, but he seems to try to subvert expectations at almost every point. And I think 75% of them actually work, make the story more interesting. Whereas the other 25% exist simply to subvert your expectations and they add nothing. Yeah, see, there's a lot of films where I think that it would be a valid point to make, but not for Star Wars, which is really not built for this sort of thing. Star um, Wars is too limited for that, I think. It's, plus, it's so plus, limited in scope. Plus, they spent so long building it up in the last film that it just sort of n- renders that null and void. You know, the, the build up the whole mystery of who's Ray's parents. So, apparently, no one, born, no one cares. Built up the mystery of who's this Snoke guy. Oh, it's just some goon. Don't worry about him. He'll be gone soon. Yeah. You know, it, it just it seems to be doing it just on a whim. But um, I think for most of that, it's okay because actually, I thought Snoke seemed a terrible villain at the start. He seems a terrible villain in this. So, what happens to Snoke? I'm pretty glad about actually. And. The whole race parents thing, I was really hoping that they would go down the road they went because it could still be undone in the next episode, unfortunately. Um, it's definitely a possibility, but it's like Star Wars, for all that it should be this huge playground of a galaxy in which to tell stories, it's incredibly limited. It's got so little imagination and the fact that everybody must be connected to everybody else the fact that they decided that that wasn't the case this time, I was like, oh, great, good. I'm I'm happy about that. But then, um, I don't know, this, the whole giant space donkey um, scene and that whole section of Canto Bite that most people don't seem to like, I also don't like it. It's unnecessary. It goes nowhere and it takes three and a half days to finish. And I, I watched this a second time in the cinema and I still thoroughly enjoyed it. I still think it's comfortably the second best Star Wars film now behind The Empire Strikes Back, again with my caveat of earlier. But it's... I don't know, I really enjoyed it. I didn't expect to enjoy it because I was so disappointed by The Force Awakens. And one thing I will give it great credit for is the fact that this trailers gave nothing away. Whereas I'd avoided all The Force Awakens trailers, remembering my childhood love of Star Wars um, and... So I knew nothing and I watched the film and hated it. 
this time I didn't actually care and find out that they did a really good job with the trailers, which nobody does nowadays, of giving almost nothing away, which is nice. So I find I'm actually finding lots of positives about this film. I mean, there are negatives, there are plot holes, there are things that don't make a lot of sense. Everyone's an idiot. <laughs> yes, everyone's an idiot, but then... Um, but then I, some of the criticisms are from idiots too. There are things like, why didn't Laura Dern tell um, Oscar Isaac what she was going to do? And I'm like, she's his commanding officer, she doesn't have to. More pressingly, I mean, why didn't Poe Dameron figure it out because it was happening in plain view? Yeah. I don't, I just don't, uh, nah. But it's, unfortunately, as much as I enjoyed it, if you start thinking about it, it really starts to fall apart. And then there were things that happened, like what happens with Finn near the end? That character is useless. The character does nothing. I don't find that character interesting at all. Um, and the bit when he's walking around his ship with water pouring out of his back, it's just ridiculous. It looks stupid. It's one of those ridiculous comedy moments that fall completely flat. And Okay, so what's going to happen with Finn? And then finally they give Finn something actually useful to do that might um, buy some time for his friends, and then they undo it because somebody's fallen in love with them in the, what, half a day that they were away somewhere else on a day trip. Okay. That, that seems really stupid. Yeah, I don't see. The more I talk about it, the less I'm liking it. So I'll probably stop that because I did enjoy it. It's um, it's a movie. But the Benicio del Toro character, I don't understand why he's in there at all. Adds nothing to the film. But that whole that whole subplot adds nothing. And then you have apparently people were really really big fans of Gwendolyn. Can't act, but she's really good with a sword. Christy as Captain Phasma. Apparently because Hello the Stormtrooper Shiny. And that that appears to be the entire character. The Stormtrooper's a shiny Stormtrooper, but she's a great villain and everybody's really looking forward to seeing this fight with her and Finn. And like, okay. Her character isn't developed at all in The Force Awakens. I can't speak to this all. Well she doesn't have a character, Craig. No. She's shiny. Not. Well, I know, exactly. And I was really even in The Force Awakens, I was kind of caught off guard by that because I'd been led to believe that she would be quite a major character. And I think uh, you don't even see her with her helmet off, do you, in The Force Awakens? And I think she has maybe three lines and doesn't do anything. It, it doesn't get any better for her in this film either, uh, which was, <laughs> I think, was another reason that, that fans are annoyed because, for, for better or worse, people did latch on to that as a character. I, I, I don't understand why either, but they did. No. And the way that they've treated a number of the characters in this seems almost like a deliberate middle finger. To them, I think, I think with fans, I don't they're understand the point. A, they're looking for a new Boba Fett, aren't they? Well, that's Boba Fett. Is all I was going to mention, Craig. Um, Boba Fett was. It's hard to believe what a lot of what George Lucas says because he changes his mind given the day of the week. Hmm. But um, he seems to have been quite taken back by the popularity of Boba Fett after the Empire Strikes Back, hmm. and he said that so consistently um, that I suspect that's probably true. Although. Yeah. Uh, Understandably, because nice. Boba Fett does nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he was this kind of like mysterious character in the background who took away the body of the best character in Star Wars, right? So mm. I can see why people latched onto it, but not quite with the fervor that they did because he didn't do anything. No. But Phasma is basically the Boba Fett character with possibly even less characterization yes. <laughs> because she's cool. because there was only one Boba Fett, right? There was mm. one, whereas. She's one of eight billion stormtroopers who just happens to be shiny. So 
I'm quite glad that character got given nothing here because there was no character, but uh, it was just so underwhelming. Um, and yeah, and it's I, mean, I kind of like her as Brianna Tarth in Game of Thrones, but she's really not a good actor. She's more a physical presence than an actor. Um, yeah, yeah. I still I still really enjoyed it, and I liked. I'd get, let's say I liked seventy five percent of the subvertive expectations, and the other twenty five percent seemed to either be for the sake of it, or as Scott said, like some sort of middle finger. And actually, I'm fine with that because the Star Wars universe and Star Wars fandom is so limited because it only has one thing. You only want one thing. You know, it's got to have lightsabers and it's got to have X wings and stuff. And if it doesn't have that, nobody's interested because like, there's no scope there for exploration of anything different. That's presumably what Ryan Johnson's new trilogy is going to be but if it ends up having jedi and lightsabers and stuff then i will not be surprised because it's all that star wars can support what i did like though particularly was yoda because yoda's fun and puppet yoda at that so great and that's yoda had one of the few actually probably funny humorous lines it wasn't a failed attempt at comedy when he talks about ray having all the knowledge that she needs because, you know, she stole the books and Luke Skywalker doesn't know that. So there was like, that sort of interplay was really fun. I just wish there was more of that. But I still really enjoyed the film. I get this horrible feeling that the more I think about it, the less I'm going to like it. And so I'm going to stop thinking about it. And talking about it, you'll be pleased to hear. And I thought it was well rubs. But now I think they're all well rubs. So, uh, yes. <laughs> Take them away. And that'll, that'll wrap us up for the day, I guess. Some it's- feedback on the old Twitters, I guess. First off, thanks to the various people who've given us notes of appreciation on the last couple of episodes, the, the Bloodsport and Enter the Dragon one, and of course the Takua Zahata one, so a lot of people seem to like those, so that's great. Thanks very much for that. I guess on these films, we'll start off with uh, Last Jedi with uh, Matt Toller, at M. Toller on the Twitters, who's been pretty vocal about it, but for the record, The Last Jedi was stupefyingly bad on multiple levels, utterly devoid of the qualities I found enjoyable in Ryan Johnson's other films. Which, well, I agree with you. I have words with Drew. <laughs> At Chopper Fireball, the exploding helicopter, again. They think that The Foreigner is really good. Chan is great as an older, vulnerable man with a particular set of skills, and few directors know how to shoot action as well as Martin Campbell. Again, I agree with you. Drew doesn't have words with him. Stephen Nelson, at Scott Sackler on Twitter, thinks that Jumanji was a fun yet predictable romp. It lacked a proper antagonist, not counting the game itself, and didn't have the menacing nature or genuine threat of the original. Now, where does it even begin with The Last Jedi? Um, apart from being full of galaxy-sized plot holes and terrible acting, The Last Jedi took a giant jobby on all the Star Wars lore that preceded it. The villains became irrelevant and the heroes were annoying and facile. The worst film in the franchise, certainly the most infuriating. <laughs> Until Darren Aronofsky directs one. I certainly think it's, it's still, I would argue, leagues ahead of any of the prequels, but still, I'm no fan of it. The Films and Swearing podcast at FAS Podcast on Twitter. Love the foreigner. Another vote for that. Uh, seeing Jackie Chan do anything uh, different always captures my interest. Watching him melt a bloke over the head with a flat screen was amazing. Proper Oshana. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it does have that. So if that's what you want, that's what it delivers. You've made me really homesick there, mate, <laughs> by using the word melt. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Perpetual Dumb Machine at Blake Wrights on Twitter. Uh, it, the film, hits the mark with its graphics effects and acting, especially with Hansy Pennywise, but the frenetic pace required to work so many characters in left the scares oddly staccato on the film as a whole rushed. He also liked The Last Jedi Born of Force Awakens, but still feels off with narrative structure and messaging. 
But maybe he's just getting old. For a movie that's ostensibly about moving beyond your hero's inspiration, it sure feels obliged to keep revisiting old heroes and having fan-insert characters whose main purpose seems to be to gush over the main cast. But yes, please come up with a non-Death Star finale. Yes, a broad spectrum opinion there from some of our favourite podcast friends, but yes, please keep those opinions coming in as we dive on to our next works, and we'll advise you of that in due course on the old Twitters. Please keep in touch with us. Twitter, that's at FuzzOnFilm. Facebook, facebook.com slash FuzzOnFilm, or email, that's podcast at FuzzOnFilm.com. Oh, that'll wrap us up for today, unless you've got any other pressing items on the agenda, gents. No. No? Well, fair enough. We'll just say goodbye then. So it's a goodbye from me, a goodbye from Drew Tavenil. I think I'm going to go and make a snowman now. Bye-bye. And a goodbye from Craigie Smith. I'm going to my bed. <laughs> Farewell.